You're listening to the Contemplative Light Podcast with your host, Clint Sabon. Sungshim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for your welcoming, Clint. Yes, sure. It's great to have you. Um, for listeners that may not be familiar with your work, do you want to give a little bit of a background about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Sungshim. That's Korean. That means sacred heart. I grew up, born and grew up in Korea, South Korea until 29. I came to America to study further uh, immersion family therapy. Um, my original intention was to go back to Korea to be part of restoring, in my mind, restoring the health of churches. But I met my husband in my class, and I ended up living in this place. Currently, I am uh, working as a marriage and family therapist, but I call myself contemplative marriage and family therapist because I include or integrate my uh, psychological training with this contemplative aspect of just wisdom and healing. So I have two kids and I'm currently living Los Angeles area, enjoying just doing my uh, practice, uh, raising my kids and enjoying John. That sounds fantastic and very interesting. Um, so what does um, contemplative therapy look like for someone that's coming into session, struggling with trauma or anxiety or a variety of issues? Yeah, I think I think this is how I see it. When I, the, so almost can I just compare and contrast? Before I am more integrating the wisdom from this contemplative tradition, I see anxiety or depression, whatever my client's presenting uh, as an issue that I need to eliminate or help them to get rid of. And I think that's what clients said, and that's how I was trained in a mental health model. You'll be paid for actually reducing those symptoms, for example, anxiety or depression, uh, just relational problem, which still it'll happen. But I think the way that we go about uh, is how can I befriend the reality of your pain? Because I think we tend to lean towards uh, this dualistic way of thinking. There's a light or darkness. So light or the life or death. And then, of course, I don't like death or darkness. And which I didn't know until later, life holds both reality. I think when I approach people's mental health or well-being as a dualistic way of looking at it, in my attempt to help uh, people to bring more life, I didn't know that uh, not intentionally, I just put this aspect of our life, this death, as well as this darkness, it is the another side, another, uh, what's that coin has a two side, right? Like I just took the other side out and not only my own journey and seeing people that doesn't really bring a fullness of life. So 
if those people, let's say anxiety and depression comes, I am inviting my clients to see that even their initial visiting with me as an already, they're uh, saying yes to the invitation that depends on what kind of clients I have, those who have more coming from a Christian tradition, then I just call that, that's an invitation from God to bring them into a deeper healing through this anxiety and depression and helping them to bear or tolerate this sensation and pain of anxiety and depression, right? And then in the sitting together with them, and they become aware of the beauty and wisdom in those symptoms they originally wanted to get rid of. Does it does it sound did I answer your yeah, question? Yeah, that makes Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think that's a real good point because psychology can tend to just think, okay, there's a negative symptom, let's get rid of it. And instead befriending the anxiety and befriending the depression. I, it makes me um, remember a poem by Rumi where he was like, darkness, despair, pain, agony, welcome, come on in, yes, just inviting I, it all. Beautiful, Clint. I, I think I know which poem you are referring to. Yes, yes, that's how, that's how I see it. I don't think it, it has been that long. It's been maybe just only one decade, I would say. It's been really uh, life transforming for me. When I approach my clients like that, I notice that a lot of people, mental health professionals, they are saying that they have a burnout. I carry pretty uh, big load of clients, but then I see each session, I feel like it's a prayer time for me. And then that's something that I only recently uh, seeing. I couldn't see it before. It was still work, but these days, sitting with clients suffering depression or anxiety, divorce, just parenting, all different issues that I'm sitting with in an odd way, I see life in the middle of the agony and pain. So it's a, it's it's an amazing way of. Um, approaching that human suffering if we can do it it, it's not not it's not rosy and just i'm not saying it it's easy but it could be an easy yoke that's what the my tradition the christianity in the bible jesus talking about come i'll give you a rest and what he's offering is easy yoke so that's i just i'm not sure whether that add any value but i think since you are talking about that poem and resonance i just wanted to uh, share that sure yeah i mean do you find that uh most clients are open to this immediately or does it take them a while to kind of come around to this way of looking at their own suffering oh clint that's a really brilliant question because when they pay me uh pay me they want me to obviously that's right initially they don't uh they don't buy into it. So when I do it, it's not like that I tell them this is what you need to do. Again, as any good therapist, I will join in 
where they are. So my presence of love and openness and curiosity and compassion, almost they are taken into a different realm that where I want to operate or I, I, where I want my clients to live in and breathe. So in their time with me, almost they catch a different fresh of air and they feel like refreshed. Then they uh, will ask or I will say from their place, this is how I see it. Would you consider? And just it's about gaining their trust. So uh, I would say after the first session, uh, majority of them be curious. I think if I make them be curious of the non-dualistic way of thinking, I did a good job. And then from there, they will go on our journey. Yeah. And it seems like it, you know, has a paradoxical effect. You know, it's like you kind of welcome anxiety and depression in and because you're not resisting them and you embrace them, they kind of lessen or it takes the air out of them, kind of. Absolutely. That's a very good imagery that you provided, Clint. Maybe one of the way that for your audience that I can share the modality that recently I've been training has been really helpful. So it's obviously psychological trauma resolution modality. But to me, when I'm sitting with my clients or even with own life, the main source of my suffering comes from that energy that you're talking about resisting or reacting wanting to get rid of going against that energy that actually perpetuates our own suffering. So then I need to help my clients to be able to open their eyes to see how they continuously perpetuate their suffering. And again, the, the, it's a more of the dualistic way of looking at their life. So the one modality that I, I really like is in a popular outside, if those uh, audience of yours, if they are familiar, there's an internal family uh, system. So it's IFS. Uh, that model kind of talk about there's a different parts of you. Uh, they believe in there is a multiple kind of state we already have it's not because we are wounded that's why we are broken into different pieces they believe that there are already we are um consist of there's a different parts and then when those different parts are in harmonizing there is a well-being and there's a peace and joy but i think the challenge is when let's say for example my anxiety clients it's a constantly jittery, and then their mind is just constantly racing, ruminating on like the things that they don't they don't have control over. It's really hard to befriend or um, harmonize it because inside they are screaming. And yeah, good point. The, yeah, the way that contemplative way of looking at it is obviously they need they need to be convinced of the wisdom and the goodness that inherently they already have in them. Uh, those who are spiritual tradition, they usually have their God, the higher being. And not only that, the fact that the client of mine who comes making an appointment drive 
<clears throat> to my office and see me, go get grocery, uh, even the marriage, let's say, is struggling, where still they are staying in the game or driving their children to school, I said, who is that person? Who is that person who's still choosing life, doing life? So either I establish their um, trust in the bigger being, like God, or you know, on a smaller, very con- concrete way, I help them to really get in touch with this life that they've been choosing over and over again. The fact that the client breathes and then coming to see me for the well-being of their life, to me, they are already choosing life. So that's where the contemplative approach really helps me. People go over those simple truths and facts in their life, but they are not looking at long enough to see the power and beauty of they just their suffering. They are suffering, but they are suffering. Who is suffering? The person who is still doing life to me, there's a enormous beauty and power. So I help my clients in the very first uh, session just help them to get in touch with their reality instead of just only focusing on their difficult symptom. So once I have them access that invisible reality of life that still governs them, and once that is established, we look at those this uh, scare part of her or him with curiosity because I think we've been just wanting to get rid of, fighting against that part that has been giving so much signal of pain, actually that part of them has, like I say, they even have a good intention, wisdom and goodness. How can I help my clients to be curious to find out what they've been always wanting to tell them? Yeah, that's interesting because it's like, sure, there may be a part of them really anxious, but there's another part that seems to be going about the daily chores of life. And at the very least, a part of them that's coming into therapy to get help. So there's a part of them that's, you know, doing the right thing or whatever, so to speak, whereas, um, the part that feels anxiety is just one part of them, not the whole of them. Yes, you're right. So almost Clint, to piggyback on your observation of what I said, IFS called that is a big S capital S self, or you could, you we hear it our true self, or sometimes even <clears throat> wise self, whatever that we call it. It's, it's bigger than those parts, right? The, bigger encompassing, compassing, what's the word? I'm a foreigner, so I sometimes cannot pronounce the word right. Encompassing? Yeah, encompassing. Yes, that's the word in my mind I see, but I I notice that I don't don't make the right sound. So yeah, it's the overarching, the one that that holds. So in that IFS model, they call it self. In spiritual tradition, it calls it soul. We could call God the... um, 
just I think of since I'm a Christian, I think of it the myself that is already united with Christ consciousness. So yeah. that big, right? Big our soul, the self, true self. Now being almost being present to those each part of me that's suffering and asking for some loving presence and compassionate action. So that's how I see. Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of like the um, the spiritual slant on IFS. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I could see how that could be effective. Uh, what about, do you see any clients that don't really have um, a good relationship with spirituality or a good connection to God? Yeah, there are people like that, and rather, I don't know your audience that well, but then a lot of, to me, in my Christian tradition, many people actually come in and they said that they their authority comes from God, but they really have tumultuous relationship with God, and God is this being who's punitive. Even though cognitively in their left brain, they know that God is love. But because of their way, the way that they experience, embody this life or the authority figure or parent figure in a very broken way, it's hard for them to fathom the fact that there's this loving presence and compassion and action of God readily available to them. So then that's a you know odd way I find out that's where the spirituality almost like disturbed them. Sometimes I wish that they don't believe that kind of spiritual being. So then it's weirdly spirituality is the resource. And sometimes I find that spirituality is their source of pain. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know whether you, you encounter that. Yeah. That's what I'm noticing. And then in that, uh, they need to uh, be curious of is it really, really that the that God or the beautiful, this pure uh, presence of goodness they are referring to, or is it uh, along the way their right brain, these different memories of their real embodied life has been affected by spiritual figures, or some people just grew up in Christian home and the way that mom and dad portray God as um, someone who's angry when they are doing the right thing. Yeah, so they need, in that case, I guess, to work on kind of consciously changing their, um, I guess, image of God or their you know, divine image and kind of questioning where this punishing God came from. Right, right. That's part of their work, right? Again, just sit. It doesn't, you don't need to sit, but just looking at that uh, pain or suffering with a curious eyes, just long enough for that suffering talk back to us instead of just, saying it, oh, God and the spiritual, those things are all bad. But just can we look at long enough for that to teach us? 
Yeah. Like, and I guess there'd probably be, are there some people that are just super resistant? They want nothing to do with anything spiritual or God. Yeah. But then I would say that's why that I would not uh, force that upon them. Like I say, what is that desire to live well or desire uh, to see their loved one be happy? To mm-hmm. me, that's spiritual. Yes, yes. It doesn't have to be explicitly spiritual language. It can just be valuing life and having a good life and happiness. Yes, I want to be happy. I want my children to be well. Like those things are to me coming from uh, our innate uh, being. We are spiritual being. We seek that happiness and peace and joy. So... That's how I will get to it without, if those who don't want to use a spiritual language, then I don't need to use it. But I think to me, that's the human universal, I think, bonding force. We want very rarely, unless it's really, really broken and um, so bad shape, all people I meet, they all want to be free from suffering. They want to be well. They want their loved one to be well. Yeah, so this is a beautiful image of therapy, and therapy is prayer and contemplative therapy and integrating the contemplative tradition with internal family systems. And Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm curious now to back up, um, Mm -hmm. how did you personally first um, come to um, get interested in contemplative Christianity? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thank you for asking about personal question because it's it's easy for me to talk about. So I grew up in Korea in poverty. I grew up in a Christian home. The Christianity was so helpful in a sense that when I since I was so poor, like basically like below poverty line, uh, dad has only sixth grade education, mom has third grade, and I was really struggling. Uh, when I go to the world, meaning outside go to school, in my uh, time back in Korea, you have to pay tuition to go to junior high. Seventh grade on, It's uh, you have to have money to go to school. It wasn't a public education yet. So then I had to go through a lot of shame because I couldn't pay tuition on time, public humiliation. So those pain was at a young girl such an unbearable pain. And God, the presence of God, the message of hope of resurrection in Christianity, I just clung to it. And then that became a a sustaining source of my life and that helped me to get out of poverty. So then one point I uh, wanted to be a missionary. So I went to the Philippines for a year and I came back uh, this is all in Korea, say uh, uh, only mid twenty to like late twenty, and then I went to another master degree back in Korea, studying like Christian uh, counseling, because I really love God, and I just thought that the way that the presence of God took me out of despair and poverty was so good news. I wanted to share that. That's why originally I wanted to be a missionary. Mm-hmm. And then in that journey, I became aware that there is a, a intricate um, 
presence of this human psyche that Bible doesn't necessarily like delineate, even though it has a like all spirit of it, right? So then that's why I became curious of counseling. So then I graduated from Christian counseling degree. And then the first job I had was um, uh, working at a counseling, Christian counseling agency where uh, that's, uh, the professor served a lot of pastors and missionary family. And I think I was 27. Mm-hmm. And I saw in that group therapy kind of thing, I saw this complete dichotomy in pastors and missionaries' life, meaning they have this public persona. But <laughs> behind that, there was a, not only depression and anxiety, there's an addiction, especially sex, sexual addiction, uh, physical um What's the violence towards children and a wife, especially because my denomination, the one that I work with predominantly was a male who are in their leadership role. And I, at a young age, I think 27, I was completely shocked by their reality. And I was glad that they were sharing honestly in this space. I became really, really curious. And also my own journey. It's not only about them, my parents and me. Uh, my parents are very sincere seeking Christian, but then they, it seems like they cannot get away from the anger and fear. Yeah. Uh, obviously, because you are so poor and you're just having a hard time to put the food on the table. How could you, the prayer life and then uh, anxious about the day-to-day life, right? So then, and then I see that in my own parents' life and then these people and my own and that actually made me come to United States to further kind of just be curious, you know, what's what in Korea back then. It was 1999. Uh, now Korea is very different. But back then, like, oh, going to America and studying psychology was just coolest thing. And we thought that here there's an answer. So that I came. And then you asked me how personally I was more interested in contemplative tradition. I didn't even know the word contemplation back then, uh, 1999. Mm-hmm. I was by then one year mission field. I had a master's degree in that. I came to uh, this Fuller Theological Seminary where I studied marriage and family therapy. That's where I had a spiritual almost breakdown, meaning my prayer life, reading the Bible, Nothing worked because the cultural shock as an international student. Now I can speak this much English. Back then, I couldn't communicate myself. I couldn't understand the lecture because I never been into America. I had to, I learned English, how to read and understand, but I had no idea how to, like basically, if I, back then, 1999, when I'm talking to you, Clint, if you, if I, read what you are saying in a written form. I understand you. But if you are speaking that way, I have no idea what you are saying because my speaking and listening ability of English wasn't there. So you can imagine this person uh, dealing with this gradual level of study and English, but I didn't have that capacity. So my whole system broke down. So I have a constant panic attack, depression, but more of that mental, uh, emotional suffering, I couldn't access God the way that I used to 
need God's presence through Bible study or worship or church. Nothing, 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 nothing work. And that's where I became so curious what's happening to me. God has been a rock. God has everything. God delivered me. Even the poverty, more difficult things in my life, I was able to overcome with God's hope and presence and my belief in him. But when I came to America at age 29, everything went out the window and I couldn't feel his presence, nothing. And then, wow, yeah, a spiritual crisis. That's, yeah, that's where, and then now you probably know that probably there was that dark night of my soul. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So all my way of interacting with God, nothing, nothing worked. That was the most painful thing. Worse than uh, panic attack, worse than depression, because I could not feel his presence. Yeah. So that's how I um, lean towards, like, so what? what's missing? <laughs> so that's, that's the nutshell of my journey, why I became uh, curious of contemplative tradition. Right. And so when you did find the contemplative tradition, that helped to kind of almost, I I don't know, rediscover the presence of God? Absolutely. Yes, yes. In that again, big thing was like probably, it was the non-dualistic thinking, it came more like later, but in the beginning, Ignatius um, exercises. Sure. That, that, uh, I don't don't think I felt or really get the, the most... I, I'm not sure whether I maximize that. I was part of the group uh, going through Ignatius exercises. And I'm not sure how much I got out of it, but at least that gave me a doorway. Or that was the window through which that I see that I don't need to... Uh, that, that What I'm saying is my evangelical old way of interacting with God, right? That was not the only way. That was the first exposure was going through Ignatius exercises. Gotcha. Just so that from there, like a one thing lead to another, and then just keep, you know, in Korea, if you grew up in Korea, we even consider back then, now probably a lot changed. I thought that those just Christian Presbyterian, they are the only legit like people. We I grew up thinking that Catholic is like they would not go to heaven. That's what I believe. That's what I was taught. And then that from Ignatius exercise to the the ritual roar, like all different, like now the teachers that I found, like that's where I was uh, introduced to this different way of understanding, uh, experiencing God's presence, even valuing even the solitude or silence, even pausing. It's not so much about doing, it's a being, you know, all this different even language which helped me to enter into this invisible world where I was not introduced to before, that God, I can meet God in nature. I thought maybe back then, back in Korea, I thought that is just new age. That's what I thought. It's just my personal story. Mm -hmm. But that I can see now bird chirping, then I, I feel like God is saying it, I love hummingbird, Clint, because in my home, I see hummingbird. And then prayer doesn't need to be, I used to go into the closet and then I put the timer for an hour 
And then I would just stay there no matter what. I'm not leaving. That that was my prayer life. You know, I have a laundry of things that I pray for, pray for all the people I know, but still I cannot make up an hour. But um, that from that tradition to now, still that there it has a value in it, praying for people and praying for the things that I'm concerned about. But I what I really like about this way of living now, when I see the hummingbird. I just gaze at that hummingbird. And looking at the hummingbird just long enough, I get choked up just right now just thinking about that hummingbird. Oh my gosh, that hummingbird. God created that that being, the life, living creature. So beautiful in my eyes. I find it so precious and so uh, amazing. And I have to say it in Korean, like, 신기해. 신기해 means in awe. Like, I find it so, like, just intriguing. And then I just sit there and looking at the hummingbird just long enough and hear God saying back to me, Sangshim, when I see a hummingbird, when you see a hummingbird, I know your body sensation, everything is, you are in awe of it, right? That's how I see you. The very sensation you are feeling right now, the tears of this beauty of this creation I created. You feel like that when you see hummingbird. When I see you, that's exactly even more. That's how I feel towards you. I'm in awe of you. I'm in awe of your just littleness. You know, I'm five feet Korean girl, um, feel so small in this world. But God look at me and saying, the way that you feel towards the hummingbird, that's exactly how I feel towards you. And that just, that's prayer. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, <laughs> you've mentioned some things about um, your contemplative uh, practice. Are there any, are there any other or specific practices that, you do or you've done along the way um yeah clint i'm I'm sure that uh, can i share something that maybe they cannot get it anywhere but from me maybe that'd be awesome exclusive yeah exclusive for your audience i'm though in my circle of people and organization they know it so then i uh, i want to tie it to my own my just heritage or the Korean, just I'm going to speak from my small particularness and hopefully that particularness, I believe that it also holds universal truth, right? From a universal truth that we just really understand the particularness of it. So I'm going to just speak from my particular context, but then I hope that your audience also uh, can see the universal truth that that holds in what I've been practicing. Okay, great. Yeah, so so you can see that I had that background, and then I married non-Korean, uh, the uh, Caucasian guy that I just met this guy in the class. He was my classmate, and we married. And then we ended up serving in a uh, Korean-American church here in L.A., pretty sizable big church. And then I don't actually find at home either because I have to go to where people speak Korean, uh, worship in Korean, but then this one is a Korean-American. They are all English-speaking, but then ethnicity-wise, they are Korean. So 
between me and John, we have to find somewhere that speaking English is necessary, right? And so we we settled and then we were there. And very pretty uh, Korean-American, that population, pretty affluent, pretty successful, very sincere in their seeking with God. But then I became, again, the what I noticed about my parents or those uh, pastors, the missionaries that I encountered back in Korea, the mm-hmm. this dichotomy, and then our worldly, they portray one, but behind the scene, they are really suffering, right? So then I see that in my people, the, the, when I'm referring to the, this Korean-American group, very successful professional people, I see that they, quote-unquote, arrive where they wanted to go in life, but inside there's a lack of peace, lack of joy. They come to church and they serve and all these things, but still, so I see the same pattern, right? And then because of this Korean-American nature of it, now things really change a lot. It's just I've been here a little over 20 20 years. I live in America a little over 20 years. And even back then, even though here in L.A., very well educated, we still have a taboo about going to see a therapist. They are more seeking spiritual uh, connection. So then they are very into spirituality, maybe not so much uh, open to therapy or psychology as much, even things change now. So then here I am thinking, how can I facilitate? So I'm a therapist and the clients will come and tell me the secrets of their heart and being seen and heard by me, just me or moral being sangshim and walk away feeling comforted and supported. But then there is a, we have this endless goodness, pure goodness of God, loving presence and compassionate action in his presence. Yet, yet we are not fully utilizing that. So then uh, we are vibrant in worship, mission and Bible study, small group. But the internal, this contemplative just way of living is missing. So then I was thinking, how can I help my brother and sister? So then since if they are not going to go sit with their either spiritual director or therapist, how can I make anything, create something for them to encounter God as if therapist in their prayer life, if they sit with God as if God is a wonderful counselor or the best therapist, if they are not going to go and see a therapist, I want to create something. And they are very educated people. So then writing and journaling, those things, they already believe that the power of it. So that one day, I've been seeking that, right? I've been curious, like, God, how can I become a kind of person who can help my people to suffer less or the other ways uh, suffer well? And there's there's a concept of it can, you can call it empathy, compassion, or attunement. They're all similar. Like when therapist sees a client, we want to offer our presence, obviously open, curious, and compassionate. And how they feel my presence of love is they feel seen at the end of the session or throughout my session. They feel seen. They felt heard. They felt understood. They, they know that I'm glad to be with them, even though they are talking about horrible things that they did. 
I don't judge them. Hopefully they feel my gladness with them. I rather see they are suffering with tenderness and compassion and whatever the tool that I have, here I am offering help. So that elements that I just described, feeling seen, heard, understood, and somebody just glad to be with them. And there is a resource and help. Those five things that I just described, right? It's a nonverbal, invisible reality, right, Clint? It's not something I just, I keep saying, I see you, I hear you. That's not how they get that sense. It's a very nonverbal. So then I realize, and then also that I found it in my curiosity, that's what the when God show up to Moses in a burning bush in Exodus 3, God is telling Moses, I have seen my people's suffering. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. And then there's a this sequence that I just said, I found it, the God now letting Moses know, this is who I am. And then now I want to deliver my people through you. So in that Exodus chapter, I see the sequence that I'm talking about. So then I designed a simple journaling prompt. Uh, what if you sit down when you reflect your life, whenever the time, whenever the time of the day you lost the peace, uh, when you feel pain and you feel like you are suffering, can you imagine the possibility that you are not alone? This God of love sees you and hears all the things that goes in your head, you know, your self-talk and this like the perpetually painful, this like criticizing thought, doubtful, despair, depressing, judging, all those thoughts. He hears it all with this just great love. And then he gets it. He gets the size of that pain. Many of us invalidate our suffering because honestly, even to me, there are in a third world. Um, now people are dying of just hunger. And here I am, those who live in America. I mean, there are people still like that. Yet, yeah, we live in abundance. If you are Christian, if you think about your suffering, let's say I am I'm having a hard time because my kids get a, a B, not A. The pain is real, but then when you compare your pain to the human bigger suffering, the poverty or disease, then we invalidate our experience. Like, oh, God doesn't care about this kind of thing. There is a much bigger things going on out in the world. But that invalidating your experience is a yeah. source of great suffering. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because I mean, I think that's so easy to do and to kind of um, feel like, well, I've got enough food to eat. I know where my next meal is coming from. I've got a nice place to stay. Like, I don't have the right to be feeling this bad. Absolutely. Yeah. So then in a modern world right here, especially here in America, that it's a, why the loneliness, depression, anxiety is so pervasive in our culture because we invalidate it we invalidate those and then and, and there is some good in it i really i don't want to throw that out we need to see it in perspective those things are real but then i want to think about clean 
what kind of people I want to become. If I want to become a channel of blessing, right? We need to mobilize all the resources mentally, emotionally, spiritually, even financially, economic resources, so that I can be a portal of those blessings to the world around us. Then it begins with not invalidating our whatever the small size of pain. You might think that it's small and comparing to that big suffering over there, it might be nothing. But at that moment, that present moment, you are suffering. But then we invalidate it. And especially Christian, those who are actually seeking a bigger, uh, like a humanity's well-being, like whoever listening to your our talk, I'm sure they are that kind of people. Thus, that's what I'm talking about, does, then we will embrace that, but we kind of dismiss our own those pain. Like, oh, this is nothing comparing to this bigger problem of human suffering. But then I said, no, God gets it. God understand how big this is for you. Yeah, yeah, because invalidating the suffering just makes it worse. It's like yes. it makes it grow. Absolutely. So then that present moment, as you know, we need to be present, right? Present to that very moment. The one of my mentors say, only time you can do God's will is the very present moment. It's not yeah. tomorrow. It's not yesterday. But yet, yet I'm wasting my present moment by invalidating my pain. Right, right. So yeah. then I cannot get to live my present moment. So then I put that, I, I understand how big this is for you. And then there is you know, more, uh, but just that's the, that, uh, the third prompt. And then fourth, and a human being are really suffering. We know that the prevalence of this loneliness, and especially when we are already the third, third prompt, that line, we dismiss our suffering. So then... You are not even with yourself. All your, what we are talking about, IFS, the anxious part or angry part, you already dismiss it. That part of you are suffering now being alone because I, my, myself, my soul, my bigger self abandon it because it's, it's not pleasant. It's not uh, acceptable, right? So I already throw it away or like I go against it. And that moment, there is alienation from our own self. Thus, yeah. I am alienated from God and that I'm alienated from the, the cloud of witness, the human community, community of this humanity already. I'm not alone. There are other humans who are suffering in the similar way I am suffering. But then at that moment, I'm all alone. I'm all alone because I'm disconnected myself, disconnected from the source of goodness. We can call it God and or disconnected from the humanity. <laughs> They all out there suffering along with me, but then I'm all alone. So the fourth prompt is, I'm God saying, I'm glad to be with you. I see your suffering with great compassion. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, I think that really sticks out to me of, of what, when you've been talking about this is that maybe even if we have a hard time validating our own suffering, it can help us get a good start to just know that God is validating it. Yes, yes. Why? I tell since I'm an Asian, you know, I don't know here in Western culture, we are not talking about ancestors so much, the forefathers of it. There is a like a very, the uh, generation after generation, there is an impact. 
So then I tell my people or the, my clients or myself, maybe it seems very small, Clint, at this moment. Why am I upset with my kids pee? But it's a bigger, not only bigger context there, and the bigger context of me being as a Korean, and that bigger context, even the Asian, <laughs> the continent, and bigger context of this humanity, I don't know. I don't know the impact that the forefathers went through, the sufferings of the trauma they went through, and then it passed down to me. So this bee bothers the heck out of me. Maybe I think that, oh my gosh, what kind of parents am I? Just like only thinking of my child is just like good academics. But there might be a much bigger context. So then God is saying it, you might not know this forefather's unmetabolized pain, but I get it. So I understand how big this is for you. And then I'm glad to be with you in this moment. And yeah, then God was help that I'm all my, I'm big. I'm bigger than you. I'll help you. And also reminding me, this community humanity is way bigger than you, Sangshim. You are surrounded by them. Not only I'm here with you, you have access to it. Human wisdom, the people are available. So like those are the sequence that I um, created and then I test it out. I put it in a book form and call it, I, I that whole call it the, call it Emmanuel journaling, meaning, yeah, we've never been alone. God is with us. Well, yeah. How- so is your book available on Amazon? Yes. It's a, okay. it, Call it Joyful Journey. The title is Joyful Journey, but the context that I'm talking about is that this sequence that I simply describe. It's just very thin book. It feels like almost more booklet-like, but it tells you, since it's so thin, people can read it right away. It was intentionally done in the thin. There's much more we can unpack it, but we made it so small so that people can read it like at once and get acquainted with the sequence, just be convinced enough to try it. So once they try it, they just know the fruit. So that's one of the practice that I can offer to your audience. Yeah, that sounds great. And and the book's called Joyful Journey. Yes. And then those who don't want to spend money on Amazon, if you go to our website, Presence and Practice, it's a, it's a lot of work, but you, you can maybe put it there, presenceandpractice.com. And then there is a, like a worksheet that you can download and then you can just try it. Okay, great, yeah. great. Well, yeah. I'll put a link there below in the show notes for the listeners. And yeah, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on today. Oh my God, Clint, I cannot believe it's been 50 minutes. I'm sure the people's attention span is not that long, but thank you for letting me share and blessings to whoever listened to this. I pray that their life will be abundant and luxurious. 